0: You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today.
1: There was a part of me that refused to let my personal work be impacted by what was going on because I was, you know, I've worked too hard for this. This is something I really care about. It's part of my identity and it's, it is a priority and I'm not ashamed to say that. And so so I, there was part of me that was like, well, I'm not budging on this. I'm not going to slow down my pace because this is my circumstance. I'll figure it out.
0: That was Debbie Reber, a New York Times bestselling author, podcaster, and speaker. She joins me today to discuss how she made the transition from working in television to becoming a bestselling author and how the birth of her neurologically different son altered her body of work as well as how she had to get it done. While her work focuses on parents of neurodiverse children, this is a great episode for everyone as it shows how sticking with the work and listening to where it's taking you can blossom into new and unexpected opportunities. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, onto the show. Debbie, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really fascinated about your body of work and your history, and I'm also excited because you know a lot of creative giants and a lot of people who um, who listen to the podcast have kids. I don't. And so there's a lot about that process where I don't um, necessarily weigh in too much because, well, um, I don't want to be that guy that doesn't have kids that goes in and tells people with kids, like, things. If they ask me, it's another matter. But you've done a lot of um, work. you published a lot of books in this realm. So I think you're going to have a lot to provide for parents who have differently, wild ch- differently wired children. So thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm really just excited to chat with you.
0: Great. Now, um, as I was doing the research for the show, I really found your career fascinating because you started in TV and then you jumped into um, writing and then your writing took a different turn. So sort of tell us that um, genesis and evolution of your career.
1: Yeah, I have a very kind of crazy career trajectory and It's always been one of those kind of tug and pull things where I had jobs that I loved, but I always had things I was doing on the side to fulfill some other piece of me. And actually, before I even did, worked in kids TV, I was working in kind of video production for UNICEF and CARE and kind of international relief organizations. So that was me not going into the Peace Corps, but getting to kind of still feel like I was contributing to global problems in the world. And I segued that because of some work I did with some animation studios into kids TV. And so I did that for a number of years. I worked for Nickelodeon in New York. I worked on Blues Clues, which I'm sure you know some listeners uh, probably watched many episodes with their kids. And that was a really fun job. And I moved from there into Cartoon Network, where I was a development executive. And that was really fun too. But what I found was I guess this started when I was at Blues Clues. I just decided that I wanted to write a book. I am a I, I'm a runner. I was running back then. That was over 20 years ago. I'm still a runner today. And I was the person that everyone wanted to talk to about running. They needed advice. Is it always gonna hurt? How do you do that? How do I get started? And so one day I decided I'm gonna write a book for women who wanna start running. There was nothing at the time in that market. And I went to the bookstore and I bought a book, How to Write a Book Proposal. And I followed it and I wrote a proposal, got an agent, the book sold, and I got to experience publishing a book from start to finish. And I really liked that process. And, but I, you know, d- didn't pay a lot of money. And so I still had this career, which I cared a lot about, but I always, had my side projects. I was volunteering with teen girls. I was helping to start a a, um, mentoring organization for teens in Los Angeles. And I used to be really frustrated with myself because I really envied people who felt satisfied in their job and could just go home and enjoy their evenings and weekends. And because that wasn't me. And I just used to always say, I mean, for years and years, when is it all gonna be one? Like, when am I not gonna feel this pull? And so in 2003, I had written that first book, and I was like, I'm just gonna write books from now on. And at the time, my job at Cartoon Network was starting to not be so personally satisfying. And I kind of realized, this is not my future. And though we had just bought a house in Los Angeles, and I was an equal bread earner with my husband. Uh, I He supported me in leaving and seeing what would happen if I went off on my own. And I haven't, I've been doing this ever since really in some form or another. And, you know, for many years it was freelancing and writing online content for kids' networks and trying to sell books here and there. And I was able to kind of make a career out of it. And here, here I am still 15 years later doing my own thing.
0: So did you get to that place where like everything is all sort of weaved together or do you still feel pulled like you did in 2002?
1: I'm finally at that place where it's all weaved together. And it's also really cool because all those pieces of my past career, they all past careers, plural, they all inform every aspect of my work. I mean, even starting a podcast, which I launched in 2016, uh, you know, I was a video production major back when that was a major in college because now any kid with an iPad can edit better than me. But you know, getting to get back into production, you know, so all these little pieces, getting to be in journalism, I was a broadcast journalist major. So everything kind of kind of fit in. And then, you know, as a parent, and you know my work now is really, and we'll talk about it, but it's very personal to my role as my son's mom. It's all in complete alignment. Like there's no division between what I do as his mom, as his homeschool teacher, as the creator of Tilt Parenting, and the writing that I do. It's been it's really awesome.
0: I'm also curious about um, you know you started. With your career in the industry of kids, you know, in entertainment and kids education, right. And -hmm. you've stayed in that arc. And I was curious, you know, as I was looking at that is whether it was because that's where you got started, or because there's something that fascinates you about that, that sort of you wake up in the morning, think, well, with the new book, you wake up in the morning thinking about it for a different reason, right. But prior to this book and prior to Tilt? Was it just something that was an inner drive? Or was it more like this is the deck of cards that I've got, and I'm going to play them to the fullest?
1: I think when I first started in my career, I was really concerned with marginalized groups in general. So, um, you know, my work at CARE, working in a relief and development organization was involved with development and, and uh, the crises happening internationally. The crisis in Somalia was happening at the time when I was working there. And so obviously children are a huge part of of the communities who really suffer in those kinds of situations. So I was doing that kind of work. And then when I was living in New York, I started volunteering with a non-residential homeless shelter for for homeless teens who were primarily transgender. Many were HIV positive. This was in the mid nineties. And so I just, I think I kept finding myself being pulled, um, in the direction of kids and teens. And then I'm also, I think I'm over it now, but for many years, like until my mid thirties, I considered myself to be a recovering teenager. And it took me so long to, to kind of get past all that baggage. And I really felt a strong desire to Help, you know, other younger girls like avoid so much of the crap that I went through as a teenager, and so yeah, I think it kind of found me, and then the jobs that I had ended up being in kids media, so it kind of worked together.
0: Okay, and then um, you had Asher, right, which gave you another exposure to a, a um, margin, a different. Yeah. Um, type of group or a different marginalized group. Yeah, so
1: absolutely.
0: Um so the so the listeners kinda get where we're going. You know, the book, differently wired, is actually um um is actually one of the things where um it came up because of your experience with Asher, right? Mm-hmm. Um and Asher is well we'll explain that. Um why we're sort of dancing around this right now is because I'm inter- I'm really fascinated about Um, your career and how you managed that um, before it sort of evolved into a book. Because uh, managing children, um, any children I've I've learned or I've I've experienced, um, is quite difficult. Uh, Managing differently wired children or children who are outside of the spectrum of what society likes to call normal, even more challenging. So you're Mm -hmm. doing that on top of a you know, typically challenging career of being a writer, some freelance, some doing your own work. And it's really challenging, right? Really, really mm-hmm. challenging. Mm-hmm. And so um, because, you know, I do want to dive into the book, but there's this interim period of, you know, 11, 13 years where I'm like, how is Debbie doing this, right? How's mm-hmm. Debbie, Debbie weaving this? So that's why there's a little bit, if you're listening, like we want to jump into the book, but there's this interim story that's really fascinating. Um So tell us a little bit about Asher so we get that context.
1: Sure. So Asher is 13 now. He's a a teenager, which is crazy. And he is what I call differently wired. He has um, diagnoses of ADHD. He has a diagnosis of Asperger's. And he's also profoundly gifted. And it was the first, the gifted piece that really jumped out at us first um, and made us realize this is not... Typical, you know, this isn't necessarily going to be the the typical parenting journey, and yeah, and I'm homeschooling him now. I have been for we're in our fifth year of homeschooling, so um, so that's who he is. He's a complicated, fascinating, extraordinary person. He's my only child, so he gets a lot of my attention.
0: He gets a lot of your attention, and um, tell us about sort of. You're the best way to say a day in the life of you and Asher say before, like after he was a toddler and able to become, you know, more than a potato with legs um, Mm -hmm. to to him going to school and things like that, just so people get like what a day was like for you and how you're managing that in your career.
1: Well, he he was a kid who was required, yeah, a, a lot of um, a lot of attention in that things took longer to get done, you know, everything from getting ready for school to um, to picking up from school to transi- any kind of transition was really difficult. So a lot of my life was trying to to make plans that then inevitably failed half of the time i'm I'm kind of a type A person and uh, and I have a lot of things I want to do my career and my passion is it's just a huge priority in my life as is being a parent but I really you know back then I thought I could you know I just follow the rules I sign him up for you know for this drop in daycare I drop him off I go do my work come back pick him up I have a play day like I thought I could kind of schedule it all and and still get my big chunks of work in. And because of the way that he's wired, a lot of those kind of typical things or things that my friends with kids the same age were experiencing were not happening the same way for me because I was getting calls often from the drop in daycare or the preschool that this or that happened, you need to pick him up. or So I was having to kind of figure out how to be in work mode and drop things at a moment's notice deal with whatever was waiting for me when I arrived to, to pick him up um, and there was this constant kind of struggle between me trying to prioritize my work time and which again is super important to me I'm also a self-care junkie you know I'm like I said I'm a runner I really think that stuff's important and I wasn't willing to sacrifice it. <laughs> But then I had this child who needed a lot uh, more attention or if I wasn't careful, we would do some accidental parenting, which which meant that we started going down a road and suddenly we had these really negative habits formed that were dysregulating him and throwing our whole family into chaos. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I definitely, um, a lot of my day was trying to maximize windows of work. You know, when I had moments here or there to do work, and then trying not to get too thrown emotionally when I got a call because, you know, to pick him up or that something had happened at school, there was an incident or whatever, because that was really hard because we didn't know anything was going on at the time. And I, but I knew it was really hard and I didn't think it was supposed to be that hard.
0: See, this is why I like talking to creative giants, because what Debbie is not telling you, right, is between 2002 and 2000 and let's say 16, how many books did you publish?
1: I, I, I don't know. It's, it's at least nine or 10. Uh, it was a lot. Yes, I was very productive during those years. If so, that's what you're getting at. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm getting at, right?
0: Because there's one story where it's like, well, you know, I had the kid and it was hard and I was trying to do my work and that was hard. And then I was trying to do the self care thing and that was hard. And um, I think a lot of us end up in the point where, like, we just kind of do it and then sort of stuff happens. But then when you look back, you're like, wait a second, over the course of that period of time, you were mm-hmm. able to publish nine or 10. And I think your website says 18 books that are published with your name on it. Like when you think of your children's book and you know yeah. th- things like that, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just like you're struggling and getting by and, and okay. It's you're shipping books like at that rate it's at least once a year. Right. Um, and so that that's what I find fascinating about it. Right. I mean, not that I don't find your struggle and being challenging, fascinating, but you were still able to ship and get it done. And so first off, I want to say congratulations for that. Right. (laughs) Um, and also I see that, right. Um, but third, like, this is what I want people to sort of take away from it is like, I think a lot of creative people get to the point to where they tell themselves in some period where things are cool and things are steady, then I'll be able to do my work. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, like there's some, um, you're going through the storm and then there's some calm side over there. And then the calm side with the nice comfy, you know, lab or library or office, you know, that's super quiet. That's where you get to do your work. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they don't do it because that crap, fairly rarely happen, like very rarely happens right yeah instead um you get you know a phone call at you know nine fifteen after you just dropped your child off um that says you know he you realize that your child is a biter what the hell do i do about a, like having a biter catch like what is that about right and then yeah yeah there you go right type of things so um thanks for sharing that story right of of that difficulty and also again um that's a lot of prolificness in this period. And so I just wanted to like pull that out too.
1: Thank you. Yeah. You know, I have to say, as you're talking about that, I feel like I also, there was a part of me that refused to let my personal work be impacted by what was going on because I was, you know, I've worked too hard for this. This is something I really care about. It's part of my identity And it's, it is a priority. And I'm not ashamed to say that. And so, so I, there was part of me that was like, well, I'm not budging on this. I'm not going to slow down my pace because this is my circumstance. I'll figure it out. (laughs) You know, I didn't do a great job, honestly, of figuring it out all the time. And I think that's why I resisted homeschooling For as long as I did, because a friend had suggested I homeschool him earlier, but I was not willing to make that, uh, you know, decision at the time. I thought that's going to, no, I'm too selfish. I need that time to myself.
0: Well, that's fantastic. And what I'm also pulling out, and this reminds me of another episode um, where what I've noticed is that, you know, there's sort of two practices that a lot of really prolific people have. One is a meditation or some sort of mindfulness practice. But typically what you'll see is some other type of either athletic or discipline practice, right? Running or like that becomes one of their non-negotiables. And what I've been doing more research and writing on is how important that discipline piece is that you don't necessarily think that being a runner or being an athlete or that thing is powering these other things but I've just noticed a correlation that people that have those types of things are less like when things get hard, they're less willing to like fall apart or Mm -hmm. just sort of succumb to it. They're like, this is hard and I'm doing this, I'm getting through it. And then sort Mm of the mind, the mind, the mindfulness practice and sort of meditation practice, I think kind of counterbalances that. it's like, I got to take care of myself too and do these other things. So I think when those two things are in play, you get this ability to um, ship under fire and just continue Mm -hmm. to do it. Um, and do it in a way that's not depleting yourself long-term. Right. And yeah. so I just wanted to draw that out too, that, you know, you're, I think, well, I should say, I should ask you, I'll be a better, how, how do you think your running and athleticism has played into your drive to be able to do these things?
1: That is such a interesting connection that I, I don't know that I've made. Um, I, I actually think, yeah, being a runner is a huge part of who I am and it, it's also something I'm very stubborn about, you know, the, I've always been terrified that one of my knees, you know, that I'll, that that day when I can't run anymore, because it is a, I know that it keeps me emotionally healthy, mentally healthy. You know, it's just so good. So, um, that makes sense to me. I am, you know, unapologetic, as I said, about getting those runs in. And I think that's how I approach most things in my life. I set goals, And then I work towards them. And once the goal is out there, I don't turn back.
0: Yeah. And what I will say for a lot of runners, um, their running is their meditative practice, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's one and the same thing. I I wish I were that way. I'm I'm building that habit as we speak, Um, but right now. Um, My running is an exercise in willpower, not an exercise in sort of (laughs) anything else besides that. So I'm not at that stage yet. But um, so, yeah, um, just sort of pro tip for people listening. Find a discipline practice that you can sink into and you get the double benefit of taking care of your body and being able to have steely nerves when things get hard. Yeah, exactly. Um, So what was the trigger for you that, that took you from um, sending Asher to school to homeschooling him?
1: Well, after he was in a private school for kindergarten and then first half of first grade, it was a private school in Seattle for highly gifted kids. And we ended up pulling him out halfway through first grade because it was not working at all. And I was really concerned that I was sending him, into this really hostile environment, and he was starting to become anxious. It was just not a good scene. Um, I called a friend who's a curriculum, an educator, curriculum advisor, who also happened to be the assistant head of another private school in the area. And I asked if I could talk with her. She knew Asher. She knew everything that was going on. But and I and and I went over to say, Hey, can Asher go to your school? And she made me a cup of tea and sat me down and said, I think you should homeschool him. And I was, I just burst into tears. I was like, "Mm, no, there's, that's not happening. And she's like, okay. She knew I wasn't ready for that conversation. She ended up accepting him into her school. He went there for the rest of first grade. It was, it was a loving environment, but once again, it didn't fit for him. So we moved him into a public school with the gifted program and an IEP, which is like a support document. So he had some accommodations And that still was fine, but it just wasn't great for him at all. And so, you know, we were living in Seattle and this opportunity to move to Amsterdam came up. And so as soon as I knew we were moving, I started calling the international schools in Amsterdam. And, you know, most of them weren't returning my phone calls. That's another conversation. But I I invited this same friend out to lunch. Uh, to, to get her advice and I said so there is this one international school or, or da da da." and she's like Debbie you're not sending your child to school you are homeschooling him if you could not find a good fit in Seattle you're not going to find it in a Dutch school in the Netherlands you know and I just was like you know what you're right and I it was terrifying and I resisted it I was definitely a reluctant homeschooler there's a lot of us out there and uh but I also knew in my gut, just like the move was terrifying, I knew it was the right thing to do. And so I agreed to do it. And yeah, that was the summer of 2013. And here we are still doing it.
0: <laughs>
1: still doing I, I, it.
0: <laughs> I, I love the look on your face, right? You're like. <laughs> we're like, we're still here. Right. And, yep. but, but again, you, you mentioned that you were a reluctant homeschooler. Right. And so yeah. I think that sort of tells part of the story as well. Right. Yeah. Is that, yeah. um, and it seems to be working.
1: Yes. And I'm not a reluctant homeschooler anymore. Okay. I have to say, I mean, that first year was really hell. It was really one of the hardest things I've ever experienced in my life. Not only, you know, personally adjusting to a new life. I'd never even visited the Netherlands, you know, and sort of show up here, not speaking the language and having left our entire support network behind. And then Asher was furious with us for the move, and just angry most of the time. And so that first year was terrible, and then it started getting better. And now, you know we have our we all have our bad days. but um but for the most part, it's amazing. I'm grateful beyond belief that I get to spend this time with him. And he is thriving, like I never thought was possible. So I am, I'm in kind of a constant state of gratitude that I get to do this, which is a big turnaround,
0: <laughs> big turnaround. And so, um, shortly after this move is when you started the, um, tilt parenting website and podcast, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so tell us how that got started.
1: Yeah. So I, I think I always knew I was going to create it from when he was, um, a little guy, because I was, you know, I'm such a researcher, you know, when you write books, you know, there's a lot that goes into, you know, researching and uh, just seeing what's available. And I was having such a hard time accessing information. And I was like, if I'm having trouble figuring this out, the normal person is totally screwed. Like I just could not, I couldn't believe that it was this hard to know how to navigate this journey. And so And then on top of that, I also felt that so much of what existed was really unfriendly. And design-wise, you know, the websites were kind of depressing to engage with. And, you know, it's just not a positive experience. And so I, you know, before I moved here, I was like, someday I'm going to make a website that feels cool and hip and positive and you feel excited to visit it. And so I had this kind of vague vision And, uh, and then, you know, I started becoming really into podcasts. And so I started thinking about, well, that would be great if I can bring all these experts to people, I can give the information that I didn't have access to. And so I started thinking about it. Actually, I started originally thinking about the book. I thought I would write the book first and then create Tilt. And, uh, and so I started working on a book that was kind of a inspirational memoir, I don't know why cause I don't, that's not really my genre, but I think my agent was like, yeah, I think inspirational memoir. So I worked on that for a while. Um, and it didn't, it didn't sell, which I'm so grateful that that book didn't sell <laughs> because that would not have been good. Uh, so when the book didn't sell my husband, and I was kind of down about that and my husband was like, well, why wait? Like you know what you want to create, do that now. And I was like, okay, I, yeah, good idea. And so I, I actually um, I used Jonathan Fields was running his Revolution U School at the time, mm-hmm. and it came up at the perfect time. And I said, you know what, I'm going to sign up for this because this is really going to help me kind of understand my messaging and my vision, and for the revolution I want to start. And so I went through that and that helped me kind of get a lot of clarity around what it was going to be. And that was, I don't even remember, maybe the summer of 2014. So it was a while ago. Um, And then it just kind of took shape over time.
0: It's fascinating because you got started writing books sort of before social media and everything like that took up big and blogging and like you were right on the leading edge of that, right? Or the Mm -hmm. the tailing edge where it used to be the case. Um, for people who don't know this, right? It used to be the case where you would come up with a book idea, you would sort of come up with a proposal and you'd write it like you did in 2002, right? That was sort of mm-hmm. the the older way of doing it. But when you look at it now, it's you develop a platform and then you develop a book usually, right? That's a yeah. better way about going about it. So for me, it's, it's, as you were telling the story, I was like, wow, like you started with Asher 2005-ish, 2006-ish, I don't know quite the timestamp, right? Uh, maybe 2000.
1: 2004.
0: He was born. 2004. So, um, and so, and you struggled with this for six to eight years. You're a writer in the webscape. I'm like, well, yeah, the website, the website could have come a lot sooner, right. Mm -hmm. In different ways like that. But again, that's because I came in right during the transition, right. Um, of, of the sort of thing. So, um, it seems backwards unless you sort of think about, Um, the way publishing has gone now to where, you know, it's more about that. I I think, and granted, I'm not, you know, I'm not an agent and I'm not Todd Satterston, but what I've seen thus far is it's much more about the person in the platform first, Mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. you can spin off a book as opposed to the book first, and then we can build from there. Right.
1: Yeah, that's totally true. And I think it didn't even occur to me to start it earlier because I wasn't willing to give up writing the teen stuff. I had spent years working on becoming a an authority in the teen girl advocacy space. And I was starting to get more speaking events at like conferences and luncheon keynotes. And, and I wrote many books in that. And I was like, I'm not giving this up because of this stuff, you know, and my best friend who is a, an educational psychologist, she's, we met at blues clues and she knows Asher very, very well. And aunt, aunt Alice, um, she would always say to me, Debbie, like, these are not competing things. You know, this is all going to come together. You know, I think being Asher's mom is more a part of your work than you know. And I was like, well, I don't think so. I've been doing this for years. Like, so I think I wasn't even open to the possibility of creating that at the time. And it wasn't until, it was like shedding old skin, moving here, because we had, like, there was nothing left from our old life, not the social pressures and the, you know, the uninvited playdates and, you know, all of that stuff, it was just gone. And it really helped me look at things in a whole different light.
0: Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, because, you know, you wrote Doable in 2015. Mm -hmm. And Doable is um, how to get things done, reach goals for teen girls, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And then there's like this interesting pivot, boom. Right, Um, where um, all of a sudden you're writing about differently wired, right, Mm -hmm. Um, and and things like that. Now, um, when I was doing the research, I noticed that because I'm like, there's not really a author platform site for all your other books. Like you have to actually Mm -hmm. do some work to figure out what those other books are. Mm -hmm. But now the thing is differently wired, and so part you know part of it is I figured it's a marketing strategy. You know, the new book, put that up front. You know, don't necessarily Mm -hmm. worry about the old stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But what I'm hearing is there may not have been a consolidated sort of platform for Debbie, for Debbie before was. this book. There was? Okay.
1: There was. <laughs> so, okay. Yes, there was. And doable, I sold before I moved here. So we moved here in August 2013, and my manuscript was due that November. So that was a pretty couple busy months. And um, But I had gone to the World Domination Summit mm-hmm. that July, right before I moved here and with Alice the same friend and we're having dinner after the first day and I said this is my last book for teens I'm done like I just had that that I got that clarity at that event and I realized I was done and so I saw that through I did my pre-order bonuses like I really you know I loved that book I still do but, um, and I, you know, it was all on my Debbie reber.com author and there's all kinds of free content you can get for my teen books and stuff. But I recently changed that website to be Debbie reber, the tilt representative. I made a conscious choice and I, I had to decide, am I letting this go? And I taught, I talked with Pam slim, our mutual friend about this. Like, when do I, when do I let this go? And because it is, it's like cutting another thread. And um, it was not easy to do. But I know that I I don't want to work in that space anymore. I, I feel like and I wrote this in my book proposal, I feel like I have bigger fish to fry now. And this time, it's really personal. And so that's it. So I still love teen girls. I have a soft spot in my heart for them. I think my books are really helpful for them. But I can't afford to kind of divide my energies between those different brands.
0: I'm so glad that you sort of eliminated that for us because one of the things we talk about a lot is project world, right? And the idea that you have these three to five year projects to sort of chunk your life, you work on them, but then at a certain point you move on, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because careers and the way that we used to think about it are actually dead. Like we don't work in the same place for 30 to 40 years and then sort of retire, retire and move to Florida, Um, and so what I'm sort of hearing from that is, you know, you work at blues crew, blues clues and TV. That was sort of a project that you worked on for a while. You Mm -hmm. had this transitionary space to where you're working on the chicken soup books and sort of that sort of space. Mm -hmm. Then you sort of moved over to teens, right? Where that's sort of a project. And now this is your project, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if history is true, like there will be an end cap to this, right? To where Don't ask me be... what's next. <laughs> yeah, no, that's the thing. That is always the thing. It's like, what's next? It's it's one yeah. of those things that people we like, if you if we were to roll back like 10 years ago and say, um, 10 years ago, could you imagine where you like that you would be where you are today? Almost always that's... we shake our head. We're like, no way. But why do we assume that 10 years from now, if we're yeah. doing the same things we've been doing that we'll be able to see where we are then cuz there'll be new realities we'll create new opportunities and so um mm-hmm. i think we can have sort of guesses like maybe for you being involved in a movement that that makes differently wired you know children be one of those things we can actually talk about where it's not one of those things we put in a closet or mm-hmm. that you got to mm-hmm. work your tail off right about that this is just one of those conversations we have now yeah that might be a broad mission that shows up, but how that looks day to day. Who knows? Who so you, knows? Who knows? Right. <laughs> you could be advising the UN about this around global sort of, you know, the, the global perspective on this. And that's not yeah. an out of the bounds of possibility. You mm-hmm. might not want to do that, mm-hmm. but I'm just saying like things like that, that are way bigger than what we think are the things that open up.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. It's exciting to think yeah. about. I definitely see education as in the future, like getting involved with, cause that's that's where I see the biggest problem for differently wired kids is how to get them an education and still have some self-esteem left at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. So I wanted to pull this up because you mentioned that you started TILT. Um, What's TILT the acronym for? or What's TILT mean? Just so we know.
1: It's not an acronym. I get asked that question a lot. I, Asher actually helped me name it. I really struggled to name this and every because everything I came up with he was putting the kibosh on. He's like, no, that's too negative. That has a negative connotation. That seems this way. And I liked the word. Here's the little story I'll just share that I went to the Jersey shore with my family right before we moved here. And you know, that ride, the tilt to world. Yeah. So I was on that with my mom and Asher at the time. And there's a picture of us and we both were all holding on for dear life. And we have these big grins on our face and, you know, we have no control. And I loved that image of, like, just holding on and not knowing where things are going. And so that kind of stuck with me. And when it came time to to name this adventure, I was talking with a friend who also had loved that picture and the word tilt. And she's like, but that's such a powerful word. And we started thinking about how you can use it to tilt your perspective. And these kids, kids are going to tilt our future. You know, I just it was kind of a playful word and positive and also unique in the parenting space. So that's what it became.
0: Okay. That's fantastic. And I love the story. Um, <laughs> so if we were to look at just the American population, how many kids would you say, what percentage of the population are in the differently wired category?
1: The figure that I throw around is one in five. And I get that. And it's way more than that. I get one in five from understood.org, which is a fantastic organization that supports kids with learning and attention issues, so ADHD and dyslexia and those kinds of things. That's one in five that have learning and attention issues. That doesn't take into consideration kids who are gifted, kids on the autism spectrum, kids with anxiety, kids with sensory processing issues. And there's a lot of overlap, right? So a lot of kids have multiple diagnoses, but it's at the very least one in five kids. It's a the, lot of kids.
0: Well, it's a lot of kids um, and it's a lot of parents, right? Yes. When you think about this, yeah. right? And so that's what I found so interesting as you were telling about why you started Tilt because if one out of five kids um, are, you know, in this situation and, you know, whatever the statistics for parents might be, it's not a little bit more than one out of five, given, given how the process works, mm-hmm. right? You would think that there would be more information about this. You would think that there would be more accessible. I mean, it's, it's like, I always want to pick on, and I have to be careful here because people get their hackles up about it, but I always want to think about our society's focus on cancer,
1: mm-hmm. right?
0: And when you look at distributions there versus our, you know, inattention in other places. like, when yeah. we, And I'm like, we pay so much attention to that, um, but these things are more frequent <laughs> than that. Yeah. And yeah. can be long-term more devastating than that, but somehow, well, cancer is scary, so on and so forth. And before the haters come out, my mom is a cancer survivor, so I've been through that whole journey too, right? I'm just mm-hmm. saying, when we look at the number of people affected and how much it changes their lives, there's all sorts of things we should be paying attention to, Yeah. right? Absolutely. And so um, that's really striking that one in five and the resources yeah. are not there. So. Um, I'm pulling that out because um, for people listening, you know, a lot of times people will think, well, I've got this really thing, this thing that I'm struggling with, right? Mm -hmm. But somebody else has figured this out, right? Somebody else Mm -hmm. has done this, and so I don't even need to start, so on and so forth, until you dive in, and you might figure out, like, wait a second. Um, Either the resource is out there and it's not meeting people, Mm -hmm. or the wrong people are talking about it, or it's not out there as much as you think about it. Right as much as you think it might be, um so yeah, thanks for thanks for elucidating that because again, one out of five children, at least yeah. one out of five that are documented, yeah. right yes. um suffer um I don't want to say suffer because that's the story, right um, but I would say in a society that ostracizes them, uh, yeah, they're
1: not embraced or accommodated they're I mean, they're seen as they're they're seen as inconveniences, frankly, especially in a school system, because they require different accommodations, they require different supports, and that costs money. And, you know, just to speak on what you talked about, that there are so many of us, I talk about this in my book, too, that, you know, they divide us into diagnostic buckets. And I think that that keeps us separate and small. And it actually, there's like a little hierarchy, right? So this isn't as bad as this, but this is bad. Oh, you belong over there. Cause you have this. So we're all kind of like in our own little corners, then there's the stigma that's attached to all of these things. So no one really wants to talk about it. Like I know so many parents who, who are not out publicly out with what's happening with their child, because they don't want their kid to have a target on their back. They don't want, you know, They're afraid of their future potential. There's so much. And so we're kind of kept silent. We're kept powerless because we're separated out. And one of the things I really wanted to do through TILT, which hadn't been done as far as I know, which is what I needed, is like, we're all in this together. Like, this isn't... These kids are not... They're not aberrations and outliers. They are a huge population. And we can't just keep trying to push them through. Like, it's not okay. There's too many of us and, and they deserve to have everything that a neurotypical kid has.
0: Yeah. And, and you mentioned in the book that when it's um, differently wired or neural atypical um, Mm -hmm. there's this hierarchy where if someone has a physiological problem, we will send money that way. So if you're in a wheelchair and you're, you know um, that's the way that you're different Then we will spend a certain amount of money, but when it's neurological, dyslexia, Mm -hmm. you know, um, Asperger's, ADHD, so on and so forth, Um, or when it's just they're extremely gifted, right, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. then there's sort of this thing where it's like, well, they're okay, or they're better off, or they're going to make it just fine, right, we have these people over here who are less well off. And that's mm-hmm. where we need to spend the money. And so we end up with this sort of bell curve situation going to where we have people on one end of the spectrum who are underserved uh, mm-hmm. because of because of the way we have to spend. It. And then we have you know kids on the other end of the spectrum, as it were, right, with different capabilities that um, right. are underserved in different ways and then we're sort of shot in the middle. So, mm-hmm. you know, when we think about the disparities in our educational system, it's not just, you know, to, to your point, it's not... These types of kids versus those types of kids, right? It's right. we have a lot of kids with different capabilities, different yeah. needs, different situations, and this standard bell curve model that we have is not working, right? It,
1: and I would argue to say that it's not working for most kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there are very few kids who really thrive in a traditional educational model. You know, there are those kids who just, you know, they like having their packets and they do their homework, and that's great but it's not, it's certainly not the majority of kids. I think there's so many kids who kind of skate through or they, you know, they do the bare minimum just to get by, which is what I did. I was like not an overachiever in school at all. I thought it was a complete waste of time. And, and so, you know, I think the whole model is broken, but then I think what makes it so tricky for these differently wired kids too, is, you know, because of the way they're wired, a lot of the way that they are in the world, it's seen as a behavioral challenge when really it's their coping mechanism. It's their emotional regulation strategy. It's how they move through the world. And there's so much of a priority placed on, you know, dealing with the behavior so they can fit in this system that we're we're kind of shaming them and tamping down what are actually really great regulation strategies and that what they could actually thrive if they were allowed to be who they were.
0: Yeah. You know, I was looking at it from sort of a historical perspective and it's really, um, you know, we look at our education system and we look at the rise of the industrial revolution, right. And they sort of coalesce at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas I imagine before then, when we didn't necessarily create kids that are commodities to fit into some factory or the other, Right. Um, If you were differently capable in the way that we're talking about, like the family knew it and probably leveraged the hell out of it. Right. If you had, you know, a really hyper intelligent um, child that can do Mm -hmm. complex functions in your own little family business, they did the math, they did the sort of they like they did that, they ran things and you sort of carved out that space because you could do that. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas now. When we and our children and our, you know, in our community basically have to fit ourselves into some slot in someone else's sort of thing, we had like it changes the way in which we look at people with different capabilities. Cause it's always mm-hmm. are they gonna fit into that slot at some point in time? Or yeah. you know, what do we do if they don't? You know, that type of scenario.
1: Yeah. And I would say that even as a parent who's choosing an alternative path, I still I and mean, my kid wants to go to university. He's He wants to be an astro engineer. Like he's got his high sights and I think he's fully capable of those things. But I still find myself getting caught up periodically on, you know, well, maybe he does need to spend a few years in school. You know, like it's risky. It feels scary to go Go your own way, and and to kind of turn your back on the conventional system or what everybody else is doing. And it's so fear based, right? Like to stay in that system, but it takes it takes a lot of uh, self talk and conversations, you know, to kind of continually remind yourself, no, this is okay. This can look many different ways. There is no one way to move through life. You know, anything's possible, but it is it's really hard because again, that's the message being reinforced pretty much by everything we see in society. So it's hard to buck that.
0: It's interesting. And it does remind me of my conversation with Penelope about this a few, I forget which episode it was. Um, We can go back and put it in the show notes, but looking at statistics can actually help you make a lot of decisions on this front, right? Because if you look at the standard outcomes for children in a certain, in a certain population going through a certain educational system, you're like, wait a second, if the norm is not working for most people, it makes it a lot easier to not do the normal thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it's Mm -hmm. like, if, if that's where I'm pushing them, I should expect rationally that my, my child has the normal range of outcomes. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so since I don't want those normal ranges of outcomes, then it opens up the space for different things. Like I was in gifted and talented education when I was a kid. Right. And so I learned pretty early and there's a whole long story there, but I learned about the time that I was 13 or 14, to sort of craft my educational experience within the school system that I was in mm-hmm. um, and figure out what to take with whom and how, to, how to sort of do that and navigate. Then I did that until I was, I guess, a graduate student. Right. <laughs> I've just continually crafting that myself, but I realized in retrospect, that's not a skill that other kids had at that age. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know where I learned it or how, how I figured that out, but like there makes a big difference when most 13 or 14 year olds are thinking about certain things <laughs> And going going through school and making choices on that versus a kid that's like, okay, here's how I'm going to essentially game the system to make it work for me um, while it's free. That's
1: impressive that you, yeah, that you had the wherewithal to kind of do that at 13. I think my hunch is it's even harder today because, you know, the pressures that kids have to perform at a certain level on these tests and, you know, the pressure is so intense for kids from middle school on up. and you know, one of the tricky things and, you know, in listening to the conversation that you had with Penelope and just thinking about something I have to consciously think about a lot with my audience is homeschooling isn't an option for so many people. And that is tricky. Like that, that's hard. I can't just say, Hey, go, go homeschool your kid. There's single parent families. There's, it's just not possible for so many people for so many reasons. And so that that's hard. And, um, I try, you know, I try to make sure that I don't in my podcast that I don't make it seem like that's the answer because it's not. And I think it's important also to really figure out ways to work within the system and help kids know how to self-advocate and help parents know how to advocate within that. Cause I think, you know, I do believe there is a lot that we can do for kids in a traditional model. If we know how to push in a respectful way and, um, and and also be aware that i think most teachers really do want their students to succeed despite the way that some of us feel sometimes you know they they're in that career for a reason so there's a wiggle room there
0: there there is wiggle room and i'm glad you mentioned that because my point about wanting different outcomes for your child again i'm not if you go back and listen to the conversation with penelope i'm i'm much with debbie and i'm like i realize that homeschooling is not an option for a broad swath of people, right? It's not just this little sliver of 5% of the population. I think it's much larger percentage of the population where it's not. A, um, well, it's depends on what you mean by feasible. Like you can make a lot of really, really hard choices. You can move, you yeah. can do a lot of different things, but even, you know, it's not an option as, as easy as, as you might think. But what I'm saying here is if you know this, the standard model yields X, mm-hmm. you either do something different than the standard model or you augment the standard model with something else so that you yeah. get a different outcome. And so yeah. that might be, you know, having, and again, it's not possible. I mean, economics drives so much of this, right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. if you are um, a single mom working on a fast food income, um, your option of hiring a tutor to take care like to, to tutor your child after school, you don't have that. You, don't, yeah. you just don't. Right. Um, and you know, I'm just saying that in those situations, you do the best you can with what you have, but understanding that just pushing them along the standard model, because that's the easy or accepted thing to do, that may not get you what you want, right? And facing a little pressure now and making Mm -hmm. hard choices now um, may make choices easier in the future, right? Uh, Yeah, so
1: I'm just a big believer in questioning you know, every rule. And that's how I've lived in my life. Any, you know, especially, you know, just even from like, I'm not changing my last name when I got married, like, I'm not, why should I do that? Who said I have to do that? And so um, I, I'm that way in all the decisions I make with Asher as well. But I encourage parents to adopt that questioning mindset. I mean, I think from the way we discipline our kids, so many of us just discipline them. You know, well, don't you have to sit at the table when you're eating. It's like, why? Like, you know, not that that's a bad thing, but, you know, like my kid has ADHD. He's someone who needs to move a lot. And if he's working on a schoolwork or a paper or something, he's like pacing around, you know, and that doesn't necessarily work in school. But, you know, I think that as a parent, we have so many Preconceived notions about what this should look like, how our kids' behavior should be, and all of those things. And if you really start to question all of it and realize that it's all up for debate, then you can find a lot more freedom in the experience.
0: Yeah, I think in general, whether it's about parenting or about life, when you examine your traditions and choose the ones that that are actually aligned and that make sense for you and then honor those traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you have a different a deeper appreciation. So if you as a family like really look at this whole tradition or ritual around sitting down at the table and say, you know what actually this really does work for us and here's why mm-hmm. we're doing it and everybody can buy in um, well, everyone who, who has sort of the rational deliberation, obviously with a you know three-year-old it might not be a big conversation. <laughs> Around yeah. <laughs> this, but at least as, as, as people who can, then when you do sit down at the table, it means something different
1: than just yes. sitting
0: down at the table because you're told to sit down at the table or sitting down at the table exactly. because that's what you do. Right. And so exactly. that level of intentionality goes a long way. Speaking yes. of things that I think would be great for all parents, is um, you had a fluency map um, mm. that you and Asher created. And I'd like you to talk about this because I found it um, really. Um, fascinating, but I think it would be something that's useful because um, mm-hmm. Angela and I kind of have a fluency map in the same way where we we have different love languages as it were, so uh, there's a lot of translation that has to happen right between yeah. her her action and what it means to her and me knowing that, that it means that to her and finding the way that it means to me
1: right mm-hmm. type of scenario mm-hmm.
0: so so kind of talk to us about the fluency map and how one might use that
1: yeah, I love this idea of a parent becoming fluent in their child's language. And, you know, it stems from that idea that all, you know, all behavior is communication. So everything that our child is doing is their way of telling us something. And so, and I think that if parents really tune in and become fluent in their kid's language and all the little signs, then that can just foster so much more trust and security in the way that you relate to each other. So yeah, in the book, I have a chart um, where I kind of give some examples, like, um, you know, and I, I'm not remembering the exact examples in my in my book, but uh, I'll just throw one out there. But if I know that, um, that if Asher is feeling really is kind of being grumbly, then that means like he needs to have a cuddle, and so we'll go. You know, I'll just like stop what I'm doing. I'll go in the Chase Lounge and I'll bring him over, and we'll have a cuddle together, and I'll and I'll kind of talk with him, um, and you know, so it's like these little signs if he if I notice that he's getting really frustrated about something if we're playing a game and I can kind of see some nonverbal cues that some kind of like intense then I'm that's my cue to say oh this is becoming too competitive for him I need to kind of end this game right now or just stop and check in with him um so it's these kind of little things that initially may, I may have responded as if they were annoying behaviors and, you know, that they were an inconvenience to me, but really they're, now I know that they're actually a cue that he either needs some intention or he's feeling insecure. Um, you know, sometimes he does things for me, like he'll cover me with a blanket or something if I'm laying down and sleeping and, or taking a nap and he'll, oh mom, can I get your slippers? And that's his way of saying, you know, I'm sorry about what happened earlier or, you know, so we have these kind of little ways that we treat each other now, but it's really helped us feel connected. And I really do think it's the key for parents to understand all the messages that their kids are saying. And also think about the intention behind it. Our kids all want to be good. They all have, I think, positive intentions behind everything that they do they're not manipulative like they're just that's not how they're wired. You know, they they don't come in wanting to make our lives miserable.
0: What I would say though, what I liked about it is you also had a map for your behavior though, so that when you did things, Asher knows like right. what those things are. And so it's yes, the the here's what my child is going through, here's my response, mm-hmm. but also and it may be because of the, um, cause Asher's differently wired. And so he, he's mm-hmm. at a point to where he needs to understand that for different reasons, but also mm-hmm. I think it could be useful. I would try it if I were a parent, right. To say yeah. like, when I do these types of things, here's what that means. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like, for example, I go for walks with Asher and I let him talk at me. I won't say he's talking with me. I let him talk at me about whatever he's perseverating on or is- He goes into these deep areas of interest, but when I invite him to go for a walk and I just give him my full attention, that is so important to him because he knows then that he's being heard, that I care about what he has to say. So yes, kind of little things like that lets him know that he's important um, and that I respect him.
0: Great, great. So we mentioned before, before we started recording that you finished this book in, was it June of last year?
1: Now, yeah, I turned it in July, mid-July. Asher was at space camp, and I was furiously finishing. Yeah, so mid-July.
0: Furiously finishing in July, and the book comes out when?
1: In June. <laughs> 11 months later, yeah.
0: <laughs> so tell us how that process is for you. What's that experience like?
1: Uh with every book I do, the publishing, uh, process seems to draw out longer and longer. Um, you know, turning in the, this was the hardest book I've ever written. I will just say that. And not just because I had had a whole other book in mind when I first started it, but because it was so personal and important to me, I wanted to get it right. Cause the message is to me so important for, for our future as a society. Um, so it was really difficult. It was a huge push to get it in. And I was I was really overextended. So it, it was a kind of a relief to get it off my plate. And I'm working with Workman Publishing and they are a fantastic publisher. I love working with them and they really care about my book. So that's been really fun. I haven't had, I've worked with great publishers, but people don't seem to care about team self-help as much as (laughs) they do about some of these other books. Um, So I, you know, since I turned in the book, I've been really working on my podcast and building, you know, making sure that people are aware that we exist and trying to grow the audience and just find where our people are. And it's been really fun and I've had some great highlights and exciting moments. And I got to interview, Steve Silberman a few weeks ago who wrote Neurotribe. So I'm kind of a, you know, a fangirl of that book and just some really incredible uh, experts I've had on the podcast. And that's been thrilling. And so I get these kind of big spikes of excitement and, uh, you know, wow, this is great. And I just had this meeting and they're really excited about this and we're going to do that. And then, you know, all of a sudden I'm like, I still have six or seven months, you know, and so, you know, we were talking before the, we started recording this, but I definitely have been going through a bit of a dip lately, because it still feels like it's so far away (laughs) until the book comes out. And I have to just keep moving forward with all this excitement and enthusiasm, because I want this book to reach as many people as possible. And it's hard to keep up this kind of momentum for a long time without anything to show for it, really. Like, I still don't have finished books, you know, people are like, when is that coming out? And I'm like, Oh, we still got another five months. So it's definitely been an exercise and patience. And yeah, it's been tough. Yeah.
0: Thanks for sharing that. Um, part of it is selfishly, you know, I I said that my my book is going to have a similar trajectory as well, where I'll turn it in and then I'll be a lot of sitting. Um, Mm -hmm. but there's also like this question, how do you, well, so Every, every creator knows this, like when you finally create and finish the thing um, and you get over that sort of last little is it good enough hurdle and you get it through that last sort of five yards of hell that every project <laughs> will seem to have. Right. Then you want to show everybody, right? You've done the work. Yeah. You want to show everybody, you want them to get it. You, especially when it's mission driven in the ways that you are, because you really are out to change this conversation around differently wired kids. Right. Yeah. Really, yeah. really out. And so it's like now, you know, I like got urgency, yes. urgency. It, it is
1: urgent. Yeah.
0: Right. But it was urgent when you started writing the book and then there's the whole <laughs> process and you publish the book and you go through all that, or you, you turn in the manuscript and then yeah. they do their thing. And then it's like, what? I got to wait. And so Um, I don't have a lot of solutions for that one. I just want to say it's a part of the process, (laughs) right. For people listening, right. It's it's just one of those things to know that finding a way to get back into, into the fight and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've, I've got a military background. So, so many of my metaphors come from that, but it's kind of like, you've got the weapon like on the way you've got, like your you've got all the units, you've Mm -hmm. got all the backup coming, but you're just still sick. You got to fight, but without that backup being there and you got to do everything. You're like, if only we're here, this would be so much easier, but I got to do what I got to do with what I have right now with, with where I am, you know?
1: Yeah, it is. It's challenging. And I don't know if this happens to you, but after I finish, after I ship that initial draft, I always go through like a, also I don't, I don't get depressed, but I, I just feel like my purpose is gone for a little while and uh, that's really hard too. And I, yeah, it's just, I think that's the, when you are shipping things that you put so much effort into, it's it's invariably going to happen, but it, and I'm kind of used to it now, but it it still happens, you know, it still kind of catches me off guard a little bit that, that kind of dip that happens. It's tough.
0: Yeah. The um, several podcasts have talked about post accomplishment depression and we don't talk about mm-hmm. it enough, right? When you've, ex- mm-hmm. when you have teased something and we see this in Olympic athletes and performers and where artists, like whenever you've had that sort of accomplishment you've gotten sort of that thing, and then there normally does follow a depressed period because yeah. you have to figure out like, wait a second, I aligned my entire sort of life and energy to do that thing. Yeah. that thing wow. is, <laughs> And now it's over except <laughs> for in your case, it's over? Not over for a while. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, running a race and then having to wait a year for all the other people to run their races to figure out how you did and how fast you ran. Yeah. It's a really um, interesting process. But um, so, no, to, to be clear, it, it bothers me. And one of the things that we've worked on with our team is I realized that part of the reason there was a lull, which I wasn't publishing for a while, right? Um, I wasn't publishing blog posts or anything. And what I was like, why is it? I love to write. and I love to publish and I love what I do. One of the biggest differences was the time from when I shipped off my draft to when it took to get published. And the longer hmm. that timeline was, the more demotivated I was to actually write, right? Because I would start to get a conceptual backlog. I'm like, well, crap, like, I'm writing about this post, but it references that other post. That other post isn't going to be published for another three weeks. And so that means this post is not going to be published for another five weeks. <sighs> Screw it, <laughs> right, right. Um, type of scenario. So, no, it's yeah. it's one of those things of learning what your creative pulse needs to be, especially yeah. that pulse from sort of completion to, like of better words, recognition or appreciation or whatever that thing yeah. is when people see it. Like, that's an important yeah. thing. And a year is a long time to wait. So I I feel you on that.
1: Yeah, it is. It's a long time. But at the same time, it's going to be here before you know it. Like, I also wake up sometimes in the middle of the night, like, oh, my gosh, I only have, you know, this many months to do this, this and this. It is such a roller coaster.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the funny thing. Life is full of these paradoxes where things take forever, but they happen in an instant. Right. And it's like both are true at the same time emotionally. Right. It feels forever. But at the same time, if you really start looking at your launch list, all of a sudden, you know, yeah. June is not that far away.
1: Not too far away at all. No, not at
0: all. <laughs> um, so um, thanks so much for sharing the journey of your career, the book, the creative journey. Cause I think, again, I think that's a really fascinating thing throughout, um, you know, throughout transitioning to um, transitioning from TV to your publishing work to now this combination of non but that's actually driven by your personal experience um mm-hmm. and that's where i say like when you said i've gotten used to this long cycle before i from my perspective i was like okay well that's true but that was when it was a book about other people's stuff yeah and things that were not mission aligned and also your day-to-day reality right this mm-hmm. book is very mm-hmm. personal and mission driven in a way that's different than some of your other work which is i, yeah. I love that aspect of it but also it makes the waiting um yeah, a lot harder.
1: Yeah, definitely. It, it is like we talked about it earlier. It's all enmeshed right now in a good way, but everything affects everything. It feels
0: like. Okay. So as the guest on today's podcast, you get to leave our listeners with a challenge or an invitation depends on what resonates with you. So based upon everything we've talked about, and yes, you can include some more stuff from your book as well. What would you challenge or invite our reader or listeners to do?
1: Hmm. That is a good question, Charlie. Uh, I'm actually going to make it a, be a, kind of around my book and my, my, um, vision for tilt. And that is that I would challenge listeners to recognize or just start to notice their own implicit bias that they might have against neurodiverse people. Just kind of be aware where your judgy self comes up. If you're if you're a parent and you're noticing behavior of other kids, where your default thoughts go to in terms of what's going on with that child or the parent or what the parents are doing wrong and all that stuff. Um, Or if you're noticing a disruptive kid in the class and you're, you know, focused more on getting that kid out of the class than being curious about what, what might be going on. Um, So, yeah, I would, I really think it's important for this shift to happen that we all have to play a role in moving it forward and having neurodiverse people be more accepted and embraced in the world. So I think that's got to start with all of us. And I'm talking to parents of neurodiverse kids too, because we are a part of it. And so just start to, yeah, start noticing where those, uh, where the, that shows up, that kind of judgy self shows up.
0: Debbie, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a blast.
1: It has been so fun. Thank you,
0: Charlie. All right, listeners. So you heard it from Debbie. Um, Notice your biases when when you're experiencing other children. And keep in mind that one in five children are, at least one in five children, are neurodiverse in some way or the other. And there's this broad spectrum of ways that we show up. So when that annoyance comes up or when that sort of judginess comes up, just pause and think. How might I handle this differently? How would I handle this situation differently if my kid were that kid? Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that'll help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.